According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We'll be in Philippians 4 again this evening. And we're going to be looking at Yodia and Syneche tonight. So we'll see how that goes. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Call upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Dear Father, we do thank You for the truth of Your Word and the blessing we have tonight to assemble together. Father, thank You for the free country that we continue to live in and the blessings we have to have a public building with a sign out front and a website telling uh, anyone and everyone uh, who we are and where we are and why we're here. And Father, that includes folks that uh, (laughs) would not like what we're doing here, so we call upon you to be faithful, to hedge us about and protect us, hinder anyone that would try to come in here and stop what we're doing, and, uh, and allow your word to go forth to feed your children. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All righty. We want to take some time for some Q&A tonight. The microphone's ready to go, so uh, don't be shy. Who wants to have our first question here this evening? Did Robert have one? No? Oh, okay. All right, that's a no. In fact, we're so small tonight, we could give everybody two questions each and still be done by 745. All right, I guess not. Going once, going twice. All right, well, thank you, Lewis. Easiest job of microphone running we've had. Well, let's, uh, let's turn to Philippians 4, and uh, I think we've dug everything we're going to dig out of verse 1, at least this time around. Uh, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown... In this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. In this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Iodia and I urge Syneche. And we're going to talk about the, the uh, nature of the double urging here. He could have just easily said, I urge Iodia and Syneche to live in harmony in the Lord. But instead, he doubles on the, uh, on the term par kaleo, the exhortation, encouragement, and uh, comfort that uh, that goes with that. I urge Iodia and I urge Syneche. So he's, they're both getting their own separate urging. They're both getting their own separate uh, call from the apostle to uh, to knock it off and uh, to have the thinking that we're supposed to have that uh, he's been talking about since chapter one and chapter two. And now it's getting very personal before he uh, wraps up the material here tonight. So uh, this is what we're dealing with. I urge Yodi and I urge Syneche to live in harmony in the Lord. In other words, to have the mind of Christ, to think this way as we've been studying it throughout the book. Indeed, true companion, whoever that is, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And so we got some grammatical puzzles to untie in verse 3. And it's Debatable, not terribly difficult, but uh, we'll at least discuss what the options are and why um, some of the choices that different interpreters make are inferior to better choices that other interpreters make, and uh, and we'll just let it go at that. All right, so this is what we're dealing with. Uh, We have titled this section Rapture, Reflections, and Response, because ultimately the, the first nine verses of this chapter are all centered on the, the therefore that begins verse 1 and links it to the rapture doctrine that closed verse 2. And that uh, in light of the imminent rapture, this becomes motivational, in light of the imminent rapture and as joy and crown kindred. Remember, we're, gonna, we're not going to let go of that acronym, the joy and crown kindred that we introduced here from verse 1. The fact that we are kindred with the very ones that not only bring us joy, but they are our joy when it comes right down to it. And so uh, that's what the therefore is about, the uh, beloved and long for brethren. Really, we gave this as main point two in the outline. We could say therefore and apply that to the context of chapter three on the basis of rapture doctrine. And then the in this way, we can connect to the joy and crown kindred. 
eagerly waiting as joy and crown kindred. In this way, stand firm. And really that kind of spells it all out because any of those two things, I think, ruins the whole procedure. If you aren't rapture focused, then uh, you're not going to stand firm. And if you're not joy and crown focused with your fellow kindred here, then you're not going to stand firm either. I think that's a, that's a, a barrier when uh, you have problems, when you have personality glitches, when you, when you harbor mental attitude sin against a brother in Christ. Well, why is that? Because, uh, you know, Christ died for them like he died for you. And, uh, we're all going to get snatched together. And if we, uh, we probably ought to start getting along now <laughs> as opposed to waiting for the, the trumpet. Uh, but this is, uh, this is what we're looking at. So I think the therefore and the in this way are, are really, uh, impactful here in, uh, in this first verse. So, uh, that's what we're dealing with there. Reflecting on rapture doctrine should create an attitudinal response. Uh, the blessed hope of an imminent departure that goads us to stay rapture ready. And already I know it's, it's had impact among different folks here in the congregation, in my home. It's had an impact. Sharon has taken it upon herself to start asking me on various occasions, are you rapture ready? And, uh, and you know, once or twice I was, but other times, uh, you know, you get caught on a carnal moment and it's a very gracious way to say, uh, you know, I think you need to go to the Lord. You know, there's a First John 1, 9 procedure that's available even for pastors that uh, can cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so the term rapture ready, I think, is, uh, is very useful. And uh, this is what happens if day by day, moment by moment, we are eagerly anticipating uh, the, the sound of our departure. Secondly, um, the whole idea of imminency, we talked about that. Other dispensations had similar uh, imminency applications. And I think that's just part of God's nature. Since He's an eternal being, He likes to observe His temporal beings, His, uh, you know, us creatures that are bound by time, uh, to keep us on the edge of our seat, so to speak, to keep us uh, in the moment, living on a moment-by-moment basis in fellowship with Him, in reliance upon Him. I think as, as, as the eternal being that He is, this is what delights Him more than anything else. So uh, it's curious to me how he's put so many different stewardships through different imminency applications. And then, of course, the present imperative to stand firm. We discussed this. This was an issue in uh, in the Roman series, an issue in the First Corinthians series, in Galatians. It seems that uh, Paul enjoys the uh, the imperative of stako. He uses it a lot, and uh, and so we discuss that under point C. Finally then, don't overlook the in the Lord expression. When it says stand firm in the Lord, that's, those aren't throwaway words. They have meaning. It's not just stand firm, but it's stand firm in the Lord. And there's a very real doctrine associated with that. We've seen it uh, from chapter 1 to chapter 2 to chapter 3. All the things we can do in the Lord. We can trust in the Lord. We can rejoice in the Lord. We can hope in the Lord. We can stand firm in the Lord. And, and really what it speaks to is our occupation with Christ. Anything that's done in the Lord means, it's like something that's done in the Spirit, is we're filled with the Spirit, we're in fellowship. Anything we do in the Lord means that we're occupied with Christ, and we have our eyes fixed firmly upon Him, the author and perfecter of our faith. So when you come across that phrase, in the Lord, it speaks to our occupation with Christ, our personal submission to His will for everything that we do. And uh, in Proverbs, this is reflected in what we're currently seeing in Proverbs 16, as I'm calling it there, I'm calling it the divine human tandem, the idea that God's at work in and through us, and that uh, that we are His fellow workers in what He is doing. Uh, it's not as if uh, it's, it's all about what we want to do, and then we invite God to join us. Uh, no, it's about what God is doing, and He is uh, urging us to be on board His plan and program. And so, Kind of neat the way Proverbs 16 is, is tying in together with, with Philippians 4. So don't overlook that in the Lord. We're going to have it again. It's coming up in, in verse 2. I urge Yodi and I urge Seneki to live in harmony in the Lord. And so what makes that possible is if Yodia uh, gets occupied with Christ and if Seneki gets occupied with Christ, well then good things can happen after that. As long as the two women are each of them occupied with Christ, then the two of them can... Uh, can overcome whatever it is that drove them apart. Uh, to me, it's a beautiful thing that we don't even know what it is. 
that there's not a hint in the text, and, and that hasn't stopped people from speculating, uh, but there's nothing in the text to give any kind of a clue. So all the commentaries and all the speculation, all the wild, wild guesses that are out there, um, <laughs> nobody knows, okay? Careful. Nobody knows what the uh, arguments were about. And so we'll just have to let it go at that. So let's deal with it here tonight. When we talk about, where are you? Two women. Two women in Philippi are urged to reconcile and they need help doing so. Two women in Philippi are urged to reconcile and they need help doing so. Uh, He doesn't just leave it with, uh, I urge you. He uh, actually doesn't even speak to them in the first per- in the second person. He addresses, he talks about them in the third person. Uh, because remember, this is an epistle. This is being read to the entire church. So you can imagine, you know, you get a letter from, you know, a missionary or an apostle and it's being read uh, before the entire congregation and two of those women are being mentioned by name, sitting right there in the church. And, uh, and their names are now in the Bible for all eternity. And this uh, is pretty unique. Uh, in all the uh, in all the ways, uh, in all, uh, certainly in all Paul's epistles, so uh, they're urged to reconcile and they need help doing so. And I'm calling it a reconciliation, uh, even though that word isn't really here. Clearly, they have a past, and their past was great. They have a present, and the present is not so great. And so, whatever it is that needs to be different, and and it, it's not going back to the good old days. It's it's just having the attitude adjustment so that they can proceed. Uh, Paul's not telling them to try to go back and make it the way it used to be. Uh, it, it's always advancing, and as they move forward, it's going to be better than it was in times past. Uh, but it can't be so long as they're not like-minded, and that's that's really the the hind- the uh, the issue here. Um, women were prominent in the founding of this church. Uh, and when you go back to Acts 16, we'll spend some time there tonight. Women were prominent in the founding of this church, but now two particular women could potentially tear it apart with their different attitudes, with their different attitudes. And he's not blaming one or the other. He's not taking sides. He's actually urging both. Uh, Each one of them needs to be like-minded with Jesus Christ. And that's what he's saying here. Um, So this is is interesting to me. And it really echoes something uh, Ralph told me 100 years ago, or okay, 25 years ago. Ralph... um, he said very clearly, he said, you know, what blows up a ministry is not going to be your teaching. He says what blows up your ministry is going to be uh, your shepherding, it's going to be uh, issues with the people, and, and he says, and a lot of times it's going to be the women. <laughs> I said, wow, okay, is that sexist? No, it's just the way it is. So he says, be on guard. He says, be on guard. And uh, it's curious to me that that's what we have here in, uh, with these two women in, uh, in Philippi. But let's look at Acts 16. Let's take a note before we start blaming women for all the problems in the church. Let's recognize that if it wasn't for these women, there wouldn't even be a church. That they were so instrumental in the founding of this church. And, uh, and really the hunger that the women have uh, usually precedes any kind of appetite that the men develop. And uh, it's curious how, uh, how this comes together. So Acts 16 on Paul's second missionary journey which uh, even before we get to Philippi, you'll notice it starts uh, in uh, the Galatian region. And it starts with Derby and Lystra. And uh, a disciple is there named Timothy. And this is when Timothy gets on board and when he becomes a follower of the Apostle Paul. He was probably an eyewitness to the first missionary journey in chapter 14. He's just not named in chapter 14. And uh, most likely due to his youth, due to his young age, he was just a kid watching what was happened there when Paul was stoned and dragged out of the city and so forth. But here, even though he's probably 10 years old, he's still he's called a disciple, and then uh, he's called a man, in the English anyway. In verse 3, Paul wanted this man to go with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Anyway, so the chapter begins here with bringing Timothy on board and then going off to this second missionary journey. So uh, this is our introduction to Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. So the whole region, his hometown and the other two towns, were, uh, were speaking well of Timothy. All right, 
And then the first thing Timothy watches as he's traveling with Paul is closed doors. This door is shut, this door is shut, this door is shut, this door is shut. And uh, so this is what we see in verse 6. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Well, that's a bummer, okay? Just not ready yet. You don't get there too soon. Paul will spend three years there, just not yet. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. So another closed door. And then uh, passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And at this point, they've reached the edge of the continent. There's nowhere else to go because it's, it's uh, you know, the Aegean Sea after that. And, and so Timothy's learning from this. He's learning, uh, you know, he's on board with Paul's ministry, and I imagine he's wondering, you know, when's the ministry going to start? You know, <laughs> we're just traveling to places and having, uh, having doors closed, and, uh, which for a young man can be frustrating and, and discouraging. And so then they arrive at Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And it cracks me up every time I read this because in the vision it's a man. When he gets there, there's no men to be found. It's all the women there in uh, you know, Lydia and uh, the, the others that, uh, that are there. And so when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And this is the first recorded instance of, of Christianity coming to Europe. That when they leave Asia Minor, when they leave Turkey, and sail across to Philippi that this is the entrance of the gospel to the continent of Europe. So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in this city for some days. And we've, we've had several discussions about this. It comes up again and again in the book of Philippians. The fact that it is a Roman colony is extraordinary. That, uh, that they are Roman citizens. They might be on Macedonian soil, uh, but they are Roman citizens. And it is a Roman colony. And that's why the citizenship that is in heaven is so powerful in chapter 3. And I think there's a follow-up to that here in chapter 4. And on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to a riverside. And uh, normally when Paul would hit a new town, he would go to the synagogue. That would be his first stop. He would find, uh, at least with Jewish people in a synagogue, at least there's some Old Testament believers there. There's some, uh, some folks with a perspective for the under law and uh, as an Old Testament approach. But Philippi didn't have a synagogue. Philippi didn't have a significant Jewish population. And uh, it's usually thought of that when uh, Caesar kicked all the Jews out of Rome that it, he also expelled them from the Roman colonies. And so uh, Philippi would have likewise expelled their Jewish population. So no, sab- no uh, synagogue to go to. So they go down to the riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to who? Who do you see there? The women who had assembled. And so this is uh, the introduction here to what becomes uh, eventually Philippi Bible Church, if you want to call it that. But the, the, uh, the saints in Philippi that form the church. And so one of them was Lydia, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. No, she's a worshiper of God. All right. And just as an Old Testament saint, not uh, brought into a church age reality yet, not understanding the finished work of Christ and the resurrection, but just as an Old Testament saint understanding, wait a minute, things have been fulfilled that Old Testament believers have been waiting for. So she's a God worshiper, listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And she's going to cross into the church age. This is, what, this is uh, I think, a normal practice for this first century as the gospel spread to, uh, to a whole bunch of Old Testament saints. And so uh, the Lord opened her heart Okay? And that's not, a, that's not a postmodern 21st century you know, touchy-feely American expression. It's a biblical expression. And it's uh, true that uh, when we are under teaching that God can open our heart, that He can very much motivate us in, the, in response to a spoken word. And so when she and her household had been baptized, how many was that? We have no idea. But she and her household had been baptized. She urged us, saying, 
if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And so she prevailed upon us. Now we really don't even know how many days we're talking about, how many weeks we're talking about, uh, you know, how many months we're talking about, what was this process like? We don't know. But some time had gone by and it was the women that got it started. And then a girl is mentioned in verse 16. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, and so over time they're staying in her home, that's where they're residing, but they're still using that riverside venue as the place of prayer. A slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. There's a lot of speculation on this too and some of it's connected with Syneche when we get to uh, Philippians 4. Uh, None of that is even, I mean, I guess it's remotely possible, uh, but it's really more imagination than any kind of it's speculation without any any facts behind it. Um, But again, it's another female in in the picture here. And uh, drove Paul up the wall because she kept making all this noise. So following after Paul and us, she kept crying out saying, these men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. So even a demoniac knows what this is about. (laughs) All right, This is the way of salvation. And she continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. All right, so we have verse 13 with many women. We have 14 and 15 with Lydia. We have 16 through 18 with um, this uh, demoniac girl. And then, uh, of course, that caused all kinds of problems because their their moneymaker was gone. And uh, without her capacity to tell fortunes, uh, then their fortunes were dashed. (laughs) So anyway, this is what led to the uproar and got Paul and Silas a night in jail. The final mention is in verse 40 at the end of the chapter. When they did get released from the jail, uh, they once again returned to the house of Lydia in verse 40. They went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. So uh, anyway, this is the background in Acts chapter 16. And it's clear that Philippi was uh, founded with uh, significant prominent women involved. It's going to continue too, by the way. I didn't put it on the slide, but when they get to Thessalonica in the next chapter, you'll spot it in verse 4. They're proclaiming Jesus, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. And so that seems to be a significant mention there. It was true of our Lord's ministry as well. Much of his travel was funded by the, the leading women that uh, supported him out of their private means. All right, so when it comes to these two women, let's break down the details on this. First of all, with Yodia. We don't know who she is, but she's mentioned here. The name means success. Uh, it really comes with a prefix of EU, meaning well, and then hados, meaning a road, um, a journey. So good road, good journey. Um, I guess we would say something similar in English if we say, uh, you know, farewell or something. As you, as you fare, do it well. Um, anyway, it just kind of becomes an idiomatic thing that speaks of a success of any sort. And uh, this is the only place in the Bible that she's mentioned. Uh, the verb, you da'o, I'm going to say that wrong, you da'o, there we go. Um, just a cognate verb form of, of this noun. It means to succeed or to prosper. And we've got that four different times in the New Testament. Kind of neat the different places where it appears in Romans 1.10, 1 Corinthians 16.2 and 3 John 2. It's used twice in 3 John uh, verse 2. Uh, so there's really no, no issues on that. Grab these real quick. Um, simply because I don't know, it seems to me like it's a human thing that we, we like to redefine what it means to succeed. <laughs> and, and we grow dissatisfied, we, we grow um, unhappy with things that we don't think are successful and God says, what are you talking about? I'm accomplishing my perfect plan. And uh, it just only seems to not be successful because we're so impatient in, uh, in what we're looking at. 
But the verb that uh, underlies the name Yodia is in Romans 1.10 here. Um, talking about the, the Roman church, uh, that he wants to see them. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of His Son is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Always in my prayers, making request, if perhaps now, at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. And so that's the idea of success, of succeeding or prospering. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. And so, so far he hasn't succeeded. He's never been there. But he wants to get there. And uh, the reputation precedes them. He knows some of them. He's just never been there. And uh, if the Lord allows, then he will succeed in, uh, in getting there. 1 Corinthians 16.2, we've got more success. 1 Corinthians 16.2, but here it's rendered prosper. It's the same verb. Um, he says, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he prospers, so that no collections be made when I come. So as he prospers, or as he succeeds. And that shouldn't surprise us. I think we do the same thing in English. We talk about successful people and prosperous people and that pretty much overlaps in, uh, in some context as we deal with it. Uh, so um, anyway, notice it doesn't say if you succeed or if you prosper. He says as you prosper. And so that's uh, I think that's a nice testimony as well. And then finally in Third John... 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. Yeah, if you get to Jude, you've gone too far. But really it puts prayer requests into context. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. And if we find that the majority of our prayer meetings are focused on uh, health or money or jobs or, or temporal life things, um, this passage kind of puts that into a context and says, wait a minute, there is a proportion here, a ratio, that uh, if you're asking for uh, temporal life prosperity to a greater degree than you're asking for spiritual life prosperity, then uh, maybe your, your priorities are, are out of whack because it's just as your soul prospers. And so if you have to tie your physical health to your soul health, um, how healthy are you? In, uh, in that kind of a connection? Or how wealthy are you in that kind of a connection? With uh, soul prosperity behind the, uh, the uh, earthly prosperity. But in both cases, both the terms for prosper there are this verb, euodao. Euodao. E-U-O-D-O-O. Euodao. Finally pronounced it correctly. With uh, Epsilon, Upsilon, Omicron, Delta, Omicron, Omega. You are da'o. All right. So to succeed or to prosper. And so the, given this as a name, uh, theologically we can't say it, you know, oftentimes it's wishful thinking on the part of the parents that are giving great names to their kids and uh, whether they live up to it or not is, uh, is sometimes uh, not the case. We will have one specific name coming up, though, that does live up to his reputation. And I think that's the noteworthy statement Paul makes in Philippians 4. So we'll talk about that next. Anyway, this is Yodia. This is the only Yodia anywhere in the Bible, but there are many others that we know about historically that are found in literature, that are found in uh, inscriptions that is known to... Uh, these are na- This is a well-known girl's name. Uh, there's even a masculine form for it. It's not as common, but um, the, the feminine name is, is very well known in uh, Greek inscriptions. And then we have Syneche. Means lucky. Uh, means that you are bound to the goddess uh, Tyche, the goddess of fortune. And uh, so if you're bound to her, then you're going to be pretty lucky, and that's what the name means. It, uh, it appears only here, just like Iodia appears only here in the New Testament, but it does have masculine forms we're familiar with, with Tychicus, 
I think we're very uh, familiar with Tychicus and when um, Wes Beck was teaching on spiritual gifts he used Tychicus as a prime example uh, for a couple of different ministries in, in the gift of helps, in the gift of server minister um, Tychicus was mentioned in, in that capacity as well. Also Eutychus Eutychus the, uh, just changed the prefix and or add a EU prefix in front of Tychicus and you get Eutychus uh, the young man that fell asleep in the window and, and uh, died and, and Paul brought him back. That's Acts 20 and verse 9. And then Fortunatus, that's not Greek, that's Latin, but it's the Latin equivalent uh, of, uh, of Tychicus. Um, what the Greeks called Tyche, the, the uh, Romans called uh, Fortune. And so there's that. Um, if you want to look up and do a little study on your own on Tychicus, I welcome you to do that. Uh, you find him in, um, well, I don't mind. We can look at him. He's, uh, he's a helpful guy, and, and I think uh, the more we th- I think about it, we should start asking the Lord for more Tychicuses in, uh, in our churches, in our ministries, in our, uh, in our actions. All right, Acts 20 and verse 4. So, um, this is when he's leaving Ephesus at the conclusion of a three-year ministry, kind of sneaking out of town. <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, because the uproar had ceased and so it's time to, uh, time to depart. And um, he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, by Aristarchus, and Secundus of the Thessalonians, Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. So Tychicus and Trophimus. Uh, they're linked together here. Maybe they're brothers, maybe not, but they're both from Asia. And uh, this is our introduction here. These have gone ahead and we're waiting for us at Troas. Uh, he's mentioned he's a courier. Look, in all these places he's carrying letters. In uh, Ephesians 6.21 he's carrying the Ephesian letter. In Colossians 4.7 he's carrying the Colossian letter. And uh, we see that this is, uh, this is a valuable service. It means Paul doesn't have to walk to these places to hand deliver it himself. He has helpers that are doing that. He has server ministers that are doing that. Ephesians 6.21 But that you may know about my circumstances, how I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make everything known to you. So understand what his ministry is. His ministry is not an apostle. His ministry is not evangelizing or founding churches. His ministry is actually delivering letters and encouraging believers by telling them how Paul's doing. All right? Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make everything known to you. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know about us and that he may comfort your hearts. And so he's like, think of Tychicus as the original social media, right? He was. He would just, uh, you know, he'd go to these places and he would update them on the latest uh, status updates, and uh, and that was his ministry. And this is really a marvelous illustration for what server minister is all about. He was dedicated to blessing the apostle Paul, serving the apostle Paul by delivering these letters, by informing his prayer support of the various prayer requests and things of that nature. We see this again in Colossians. Colossians 4, 7. As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant of the Lord, he will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. This is his prime role. And he would do this and he does it consistently. He does it well. By the way, he's not the courier for Philippians. And that's, uh, that's huge. Because people that try to lump in Philippians with the other prison epistles I think are misguided on that. So uh, Tychicus is headed east. He's headed from Ephesus to Colossae and he's headed to these places. Uh, It's going to be Epaphroditus that's headed to Philippi. It's going north to deliver that letter there. Along with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. That's Colossians 4, 9. All right, then uh, 
2 Timothy 4.12 and Titus 3.12. These are the other Tychicus references. Um, Make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. That's, uh, that's key in a lot of places. Only Luke is with me as uh, the faithful one that never abandons Paul. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he's useful to me for service. But Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak. Anyway, the other travel arrangements there. Tychicus, faithful to go anywhere Paul sends him. And then finally, Titus 3.12. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Anyway, so yeah, we have lots. We know a whole lot more about Tychicus, and we know nothing about Syneche. It's just the feminine form, uh, and the name means lucky. So we have one woman whose name means success, and another woman whose name means lucky, and... uh, they don't get along. The uh, exhortation is for them to ha- live in harmony. And uh, let me get back to Philippians. Notice when he says, I urge and I urge, the verb there is parakaleo. The verb is exhort, uh, to comfort, to encourage, to exhort, to admonish. Uh, it's not a command. It's, it's curious. It's, it's Usually when it's used, it's used in lieu of a command. Uh, he'll tell uh, uh, Philemon, for example, although I have the confidence to order you to do that which is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you. And so an, an admonishment is different from a command. It's, uh, it's still coming from authority, but it's, it's really leaving it in the volition of the recipient to do what they know needs to be done. And so when he says, I urge you, to live in harmony, uh, in, in a lot of ways, even though it's not an imperative, I think it's fundamentally stronger than an imperative. Because it, it carries with it that sense that this is what you're being urged to do, but it's being left to you uh, whether or not you're going to, in the Lord, uh, do this. So we have it there. All right. Live in harmony. Subpoint C. So I guess before I give you that, let's. Are you familiar with the passage I was just talking about in, in, Philippi, in Philemon? It's, uh, I got in trouble this morning when I was speaking off the top of my head. I confess to everyone that I did not know the year that Cyrus became king of, of Persia. And so then everybody dedicated themselves to finding that year before class was over and came and told me before class was over. But it was 200 years after Isaiah, and that's the, the point I was trying to make. Anyway, that was this morning. Tonight, again, speaking off the top of my head, Philemon. And uh, the verse is verse 8, 8 and 9. Therefore, although I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And so there are contexts in which even though, yes, you're an apostle and you can start barking orders and tell people to do different things, there's actually circumstances in which really it's more effective to appeal. It's more effective to exhort. It's more effective to, oh, I don't know, maybe remind them of previous ministries when when they uh, did some amazing things with Clement and, and several others whose names are in the book of life. And so you bring up those kind of past victories and then you leave them with the admonishment to say, look, you need the mind of Christ. You need to live in harmony. And uh, that's what we see there. So anyway, that's uh, what we're looking at in Philippians 4. All right, so I urge Iodia and I urge Syneche. He's not commanding them, he's urging them to live in harmony in the Lord. Now the translation live in harmony, uh, I don't like it. I don't like it because it's so different from every other freneto use that we have in the book. And if, well, let me just read the point and then I'll expand. Live in harmony is yet another freneto usage. Remember freneto? It means to think. 
Phreneo means to think. You don't want to be schizo in your thinking. You want to be uh, like-minded with Christ. You want to have the thinking which was also in Christ Jesus. But Philippians is a thinking book. And we've had it in uh, 1, 7, 2, 3, and 5. Uh, I think it's used twice in verse 5. Uh, 3, 15, 3, 19, 4, 2. We'll have the final one coming up here in 4, 10. And so it's a thinking passage. And in every other place that we've handled it, we've never handled it as a harmony in, uh, application. And, and why, why introduce a word like harmony when it's not even in the text? Uh, it's think the same thing. And so uh, it's not to think the same thing with each other. I think it's to think the same thing with Christ. That's what the imperative was in chapter 2. So anyway, in the New American Standard it says live in harmony. This is yet another phreneo usage. And it, literally in the text it says ta au ta franein. I urge you to the same thing be thinking. Think the same thing. And you will recall these, these previous uses when he says, it is only right for me to think this way about you all. That's Philippians 1, 7. And New American Standard put the word feel in there, one of my soapbox issues. It is only right for me not to feel this way about you all, but to think this way about you all, since I have you in my heart. So it's a thinking term. In chapter 2, it's a thinking term. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard, think with one another. Think one another as more important than yourselves. Verse 5, think in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Think. So we have it in verse 3 and in verse 5 of chapter 2. In all these places, it's a thinking expression. So uh, Jesus thought this way, think how he thunk. Think this way and think the same way. And when you have that idiom to think the same way, that's uh, what we've been seeing here, especially in verse 5 of chapter 2. Think the same way Christ thunk when he emptied himself and came to this earth, when he laid aside his privileges, when he, uh, when he undertook the kenosis procedure. Have, have that as your thinking. Chapter 3 and verse 15. Let us therefore as many as are perfect have this thinking. And if anything you have a different thinking, God will reveal that to you also. And really, I think that's what's happening here. Yodi and Seneca have a different thinking. <laughs> He's opening it up, the as many of us as are perfect, right? And uh, in chapter 4 he says, oh by the way, Yodi and Seneca, that's not you. Okay? Because you're not thinking the same. You have different thinking. And that different thinking is hindering your fruitfulness. That different thinking is, is uh, destroying unity within the church. And so uh, it's going to keep them from standing firm in the Lord. So uh, I like the uses there in Philippians 3.15. So as many as are perfect, think this way. Have this thinking. Have the same thinking. And if you have a different thinking, God will reveal that also to you. In the case of these two women, it's happening right here. Chapter 4 and verse 2 is our passage tonight. It's going to come back again in verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your thinking for me, your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. So there it's expressed concern. I don't know, I think in all of these things, I just use it as think in, in every one of these translations, every one of these uses. Uh, or, you know, render it as for now and just leave it at that. Because uh, the fact that he's using it so many times in this book is for a reason. And if he wants to really emphasize it again and again and again from seven, what is that, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight times, that's uh, twice in, in two, five. Um, if he's going to use it that many times, he's got a reason for using it that many times. So let's not, uh, let's not diminish that or, or uh, uh, you know, throw a harmony word in there somewhere and confuse things in, uh, in chapter 4. So we have uh, the expression here. We also have the in the Lord phrase. How many times does that come up in Philippians? Uh, and we've discussed that uh, in, in verse 1. Stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. 
So we have that in the Lord usage. It's so common in this epistle as well, in the Lord. That I'm trusting in the Lord, I'm hoping in the Lord, I'm rejoicing in the Lord, I'm uh, standing firm in the Lord, I'm uh, living in harmony in the Lord. Right? All these things are done in the Lord. Meaning occupied with Christ. Occupied with Christ gives you the mind of Christ. This is what it's all about. And, uh, and really, <laughs> you talk about, I mean, these women don't need counseling, they just need to be occupied with Christ. You know, as far as reconciling issues and getting along with one another and trying to, you know, have some kind of a, I don't know, an engagement encounter, some kind of a thing to, an intervention to, uh, to get these women to, you know, bury the hatchet or whatever. You know, really? You know, just get like-minded with Jesus Christ and watch whatever, you know, it's amazing how the hatches just disappear when, uh, when, you're, when you're fixed with the Lord. And that's, uh, that's what it comes right down to. So, whatever their disagreement was, none of our business and Holy Spirit kept it anonymous anyway, whatever their disagreement was, each of them is exhorted because neither of them had this attitude which was also in Christ Jesus. They had different attitudes and sadly could not join Paul and the others in as many as are perfect. Whatever their disagreement was, whatever their disagreement was, we don't know. We don't have to know. It really doesn't matter. Each of them is exhorted. There is an I exhort, I exhort. I parakaleo yuria and I parakaleo seneki. Each one of them got exhorted. Paul's not taking sides. He's not saying who is at fault. Both of them need to get like-minded with Jesus Christ. So he tells both of them the exact same thing. Each of them is exhorted because neither of them had the same thinking, the attitude which was also in Christ Jesus. So they weren't thinking the same way. They're commanded to think the same way. That's the Philippians 2.5 application. They had different attitudes, which we read in Philippians 3.15. And so God is faithfully showing that to them. Uh, God has ways to show it to us when we have a, a need of an attitude adjustment. Uh, these days, of course, it doesn't mean that He's going to write a book of the Bible and call us out by name. Uh, but nevertheless, He does spotlight for us the attitude adjustments that are necessary when they're necessary. Because they cannot join Paul and the others as, as many as are perfect. And really, how sad is that? Particularly when we take a peek ahead and we see in verse 3, these women had been through a lot. These women were used in ministry, that they were fellow athletes with Paul, he called them teammates. They, were, uh, they had shared his struggle in the cause of the gospel. But back when uh, in, the, in the time of Clement, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life, I mean, these women have a, have a history. And so we say, you know, man, they've got reward waiting for them, don't they? Haven't they laid up treasure in heaven? Aren't they, uh, aren't they rapture ready? Well, no, they're not. Because uh, what they need to do is forget what lies behind, adjust their attitude, and start reaching forward to what lies ahead. And um, whatever the case, you know, if... if and, then, and so I'll join the speculation, I guess. <laughs> whatever the case that's causing these women, if it's a Mary Martha thing or whatever it might be, uh, each one of them has been fruitful in the past and now uh, there's a difference of, of, of thinking between the two of them as far as what they're doing now and, and what they're going to be doing in the future. Who knows? Anyway, Scripture has left it uh, unstated. I'm not going to speculate. Why? It's none of my business anyway. It was nailed to Jesus Christ when He died on the cross. All our sins are. And does it really matter? So in some respects, this text is a beautiful illustration for what uh, the Bob Gans talk about when they discuss why uh, most counseling is unbiblical and why they, uh, they take issue with problem-centered counseling and getting people to just fixate on all the, this problem or that problem or this other problem or whatever else. said so the real issue is you should fix your eyes on Jesus Christ and quit being preoccupied with these, with these problems. And uh, so in, in uh, the Bob Gamut here, when you read that, it's all about Christ-centered uh, ministry as opposed to problem-centered, uh, or Christ-centered shepherding as opposed to problem-centered counseling. And, and I think they're right on target. 
because that's uh, that's what this passage is urging and Paul makes no mention of whatever it is that uh, caused these women to be um, estranged. All right. Now we can speculate some more about true companion in verse 3. So we covered everything we can get out of verse 2 here. We don't know who Yodi is, we don't know who Siddiqui is, but they need to uh, they need to have the same thinking in the Lord. All right. Indeed, true companion. I ask you also. Now he's talking to somebody directly. He didn't talk to Yodia directly or Sinaki directly. He talked about them in the third person. But with true companion, he's talking to true companion. Or writing to true companion. I ask you also to help these women. Because uh, you know the urging from verse 2 is only going to do so much. The urging from verse 2 needs some help. And true companion is the one Paul requests. He doesn't even urge, he asks. It's a weaker, he doesn't even have the force of an exhortation. It's just a request. True companion, I request, you also help these women. They need help. Even, uh, it's common, even when you know the right thing to do, sometimes you need help to do it. Uh, And uh, that's why we have brothers and sisters that are there to uh, pray for us and encourage us and and help us over those, those kind of humps. So I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. My fellow athletes, and and athleo is the verb, soon athleo is the compound. They have been fellow strugglers, fellow strugglers with me in the cause of the gospel. Together with Clement also, remember him? We don't, but true companion does. The saints of Philippi do. Together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Kind of an interesting expression there. Why is he talking about the book of life? Okay. And it may be that Clement and this other crowd aren't here anymore. That they, they're in heaven. That uh, not only do they, they share the struggle, they paid the price for sharing that struggle. And uh, we have other indications that some of these people risk their necks during uh, some of these previous ministries. Um, so, true companion, who's this about? True companion is either an unknown and unnamed man of wisdom that is unknown to us. The Philippians knew who he was. He knew who he was. When, uh, when uh, Epaphroditus delivered the scroll and it was being read, uh, true companion knew who he was. So he's either an unknown and unnamed man of wisdom or quite likely... What we have here is actually a proper name, just like Yodi and just like Sinaki. And it's failed to get translated in many of our modern English texts. Quite likely it's a personal name. He calls him the truly named Sisygus. The truly named Sisygus. And if that's the case, then we got some interesting things to think about here in this verse. Whether his name was Sisygus or not, the fact is, is he is the he's the one called upon to uh, to help in this in this endeavor. So might as well call him Sisygus, since if it's not his name, we don't know his name. And uh, since we don't know his name, you got to call him something. So um, calling him by the uh, the Greek noun is uh, not a not a bad thing to do. The truly named Sisygus. So indeed true, either true companion or the truly named Zizigus, I ask you to help these women. And this is who he's addressing. And if this is the case, what a, what a delight. This then becomes another parallel to Philemon, which we were just looking at a minute ago. Because Paul, on occasion, if he was writing to somebody or if the name meant something, he would use it. It would be a useful illustration for him. For instance, Onesimus who was useless but now is useful. And that's uh, that's a marvelous uh, uh, illustration for him because what good is a runaway slave? No good at all. He's useless. But when he's returned and when he's saved, now not only do you have your slave back, but you've got the hardest working slave of of the bunch. You've got somebody that's serving as unto the Lord. You've got somebody that's more than a slave. Now he's a beloved brother. And so he was useless, now he's useful. 
And that all of that discussion in the, in the book of Philemon is, is a wordplay based upon the meaning of Onesimus, saying. And it might very well be, and you can read that if you want in, in Philemon verse 11, and it might very well be that when he calls out the true companion, that really he's calling out the rightly named Zizigus. As he says, that the, you, are, you are a Zizigus indeed. You are a yoker. Okay, so uh, somebody that yokes two people together or two oxen together. The idea of being uh, unequally yoked, the idea of being yoked to the Lord to take my yoke upon you, all of that is what's contained within this this noun. Suzygus. Or Syzygus. I guess I've debated how to pronounce this. Syzygus. Alright. Suzygu? No. (laughs) like Susie Q, only Susie Goo. No, it's Syzygous. We'll believe it at that. Um, now, in fact, it's probably the best explanation. And every commentary discusses it, and every commentary dismisses it. And, and I think the reason why is that Syzygous is not known as a personal name in ancient Greek literature or inscriptions. And really that's what it comes down to. Almost every commentary, the the folks that are reading this, the folks that are looking at this, they say, man, that really looks like a proper name, but archaeology has never found that name anywhere in any any literature, in any inscription, in any graffiti, in any uh, any records, any papyri. We've never found another Zizigus. And okay, well I get that. But there are such a thing as unique names. You know, it is possible. You know, if you meet somebody and for the first time that tells you their name and you say, well, I've never met another, you know, so that must not be your name. (laughs) That can't be your name. I've never met another one. There are unique names. They do exist. And it's not uncommon to have the sin or the sim compound names, uh, for example, known to uh, archaeology and known to uh, secular historians would include syndramas, Symakos and Symphrones. All of those are personal given names that are attested in the, in the uh, inscriptions and, and in the literature and in uh, papyri documents of, of that first century. So um, anyway, to me, uh, whether Zizigus is the name or not, I don't think it matters. The fact is there's a helper on the ground in Philippi that's going to help to yoke these two women. Okay, And uh, the, the term... Z- uh, Zygos here, that the the term for yoke is what we're looking at, and 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 we're very familiar with that because that's that's throughout the New Testament in terms of take my yoke upon you for my burden is easy, my load is light. In terms of don't be unequally yoked, in the imperative there, uh, we understand when you yoke two oxen together, that's that's very well known in the in the Bible and elsewhere. And so, who is this uh, this uh, <laughs> you know this yoker? Or whatever he's 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 the one who does the yoking maybe, uh, and if that's the case, um, you know, okay. <laughs> are there certain people that are gifted with gifts and ministry callings whereby you can help people get together? You can help people to resolve those kind of issues. You can help people to to knock off the foolishness and 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 fix your eyes on the Lord. And uh, what a what a great uh, what a great ministry that. This would be in that in that way. All right. Well, when we come back on Sunday, we're going to discuss some of the background here and the recognition that um, these women have a past, and the past was all good. They shared his struggle in the cause of the gospel, and that the fruit they bore um, was was undeniable. Uh, and yet um, they can't just bank on that or rest on that, resting on their laurels, because uh, as this book says, they have to forget what lies behind and reach forward to what lies ahead. And at this rate, whatever they think they've laid up in heaven, uh, they're on the verge of blowing it. They're on the verge of, uh, of um, you know, not holding fast what they have. So we'll deal with that on Sunday as well. And then we'll talk about Clement and uh, the book of life in verse 3, because there's a lot to look at with that book of life. Father, I thank you for tonight and I thank you um, for uh, 
we had extra time tonight, Father, because without the questions, we had a complete hour to go through some of these things. So I thank you for that. I do pray, uh, Father, for an understanding of these principles that uh, if we have Iodia Seneki difficulties here in this church and, and uh, likewise with two men can, can, uh, can be angry with each other as well. If any two believers uh, have their eyes off the Lord and are harboring uh, bitterness against one another, uh, Father, I pray that this would be a passage that will convict and that uh, the exhortation would be effective and that uh, possibly a Zizigus ministry might be uh, revealed here whereby a man of wisdom can help to resolve issues. I thank you, Father, and I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.